You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. We live in what some have called the age of authenticity. Uh, It's an age with its roots in the expressivism and romanticism of the 1800s, but it really kicks into gear Uh, in the wake of kind of the 1960s, particularly in reaction to what some saw as a culture of conformity from the 50s. Um, But the the phrases, the slogans, if you like, of our age are are things like, be true to yourself, follow your heart, and everybody's favourite, you do you. What this means is that our heroes are not those who... uh, you know, grow up to take on the roles and responsibilities and expectations of family and society. Now, our heroes are those who grow up slaying the the dragons. That's what a hero does. They slay dragons. Slaying the dragons of tradition and religion and anything else that threatens to prevent them from becoming their true selves. And so I think you you get a a perfect example of this by comparing the storylines of a show like The Lion King with a show like Frozen or Moana. So just work work it through with me. Um, Take The Lion King. Simba was raised by his dad to be the next king. Uh, But after his father's death, he abandons his responsibilities to go off and embrace a Hakuna Matata kind of life. Now there's uh, much to... Be attractive about this kind of life because it's a happy-go-lucky, worry-free, uh, and it's a lifestyle that you can enjoy with your friends, getting fat, eating grubs. Uh, but it's not the lifestyle that Simba was raised for. It's not the, the lifestyle he was born for. Uh, instead, or oh, so one day, uh, his childhood friend Nala comes along and reminds him of his true identity. You are the king of the Pride Lands, and your people need you. And so, what does he do? Well, kind of after a time of internal conflict conflict. He throws off the childish ways of Akuna Matata and sort of steps up to take responsibility for his father's kingdom. Uh, That, in many ways, is the historical, if you're like, traditional approach to identity formation. Uh, In fact, it's still the dominant approach in collectivist societies today. It's kind of an approach where your identity is largely determined, not exclusively, but largely determined by the roles, the responsibilities, the relationships of the people around you. They say, this is who you are, and you sort of grow up to take that on. That's the Lion King. But now contrast it with something like Frozen. Uh, Elsa was born with magic powers inside of her. But she was told by her father to suppress them. And so growing up, she was taught a way of life that said, conceal, don't feel. Uh, Don't let them know, be the good girl you always have to be. (laughs) The problem is the older she gets, the, the more she tries, the harder it becomes. Until finally, one day, she just decides to, yep, you better let it go. She says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. Sing it with me, everybody, because now I'm... Ah, that's not too bad. Good, that's good. We can do this together. But notice the contrast with Simba. Right? Elsa's identity isn't something given to her from the outside. It's something she embraces from the inside. And more importantly, uh, her path to becoming her true self takes place through throwing off the shackles of her father's oppressive rules. Happy Father's Day. You see a similar dynamic in Moana. 
So Moana is the daughter of the chief of Motunui, an island in Polynesia, where the culture is that no one leaves, right? They've even got a song about it. Um, how's it go? <laughs> the island gives us what we need and no one leaves. I'm so out of tune, but you get the point. But that doesn't sit well with Moana. Why? Well, she has a voice inside and it calls me uh, to the line where the sky meets the sea. You know it. And so what does she say? Uh, where does it start? I know everybody on this island seems so happy on this island. Everything is by design. I know everybody on this island has a role on this island, so maybe I can roll with mine. I can lead with pride, I can make us strong. I'll be satisfied if I play along. But, thank you, yeah, that's good. Everyone with their phones. That's good, thanks guys. This is why I do it, this is why I do it. But how does she finish? The voice inside sings a different song. So what does she do? Well, she tries to repress her feelings, but in the end she decides it's not working, so she embraces the voyager within and sets out in search of an adventure beyond the seas. Again, notice her true self is found not through sort of listening to the tradition of the culture or her father, but throwing off those shackles and listening to the voice within. The Elsa and Moana approach to life is what philosophers call expressive individualism expressive individualism. It's an approach to identity formation that looks inside to find the authentic self and then it seeks to live out the authentic self it finds within. And what's more, expressive individualism is really just the ideological iceberg that is beneath the hashtag you do you. And so when we say to someone, hey, you do you, boo, we're really saying, go on, you know, be Elsa, be Moana. Uh, you do you. You, you. Don't let the expectations of your father or your culture or your religion stop you and hold you back from being who you are. Uh, look inside, listen to the voice inside and then embrace it, let it go. But again, that's all just different ways of saying we're in favour of expressive individualism. So what I want to try and do today is, under three headings, just kind of dig into this idea a little more on identity formation. So we're going to do three things. Number one, I want to give you a quick introduction to expressive individualism. Second of all, I want to offer a biblical critique of expressive individualism. And then third, I want to offer a biblical alternative to identity formation. So a quick overview, biblical critique, and then an alternative from the Bible. Let's jump in. What is it? Uh, what exactly is expressive individualism? Well, uh, Brian Rosner has written a book called How to Find Yourself. Very helpful book, by the way. If you want to dig more into this particular topic, I'd recommend it. Uh, but this is what he writes. He says, most people today believe that there is only one place to look to find yourself. That's inward. Personal identity is a do-it-yourself project. All forms of external authority are to be rejected. And everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated. This strategy of identity formation, sometimes labelled expressive individualism, is the view that you are who you feel yourself to be on the inside and that acting in accordance with this identity constitutes living authentically. 
Now, a bunch about that definition should just sort of resonate with stuff that we've already said, uh, but let me maybe draw your attention to two things. The first is down the bottom there. You are who you feel yourself to be on the inside, and acting in accordance with this identity constitutes living authentically. In other words, the person inside you is the authentic you. And so really what you need to do, if you don't, if no one wants to be a hypocrite, no one wants to be a liar, no one wants to be fake. And so if you want to be authentic, figure out who you are inside and then live out who that is on the inside. Now, uh, probably the most obvious example, or if you like most extreme example of where you see this is in the trans movement where the person on the inside is quite different to the person that is presented on the outside, and so increasingly you seek to live out the inside identity. Uh, but next week we're actually going to have Rob Smith come and help us think about uh, trans and the hashtag gender is a social construct. So I'm going to leave that now. Um, Rob has actually just submitted a PhD on transgenderism, so very thoughtful, uh, really um, I'm looking forward to it, so come back next week for that. Um, but you see a similar thing in reality TV shows, don't you? you know, usually the, the person who is understood to be most authentic, most real, is the person who kind of just has this, you know, almost a confidence that, you know, I don't really care what anyone else thinks. Uh, this is who I am and I'm living it. Um, so this is kind of just the first thing to take note of. The second thing, which I think is just worth being aware of, though again I won't hugely major on it, is this. Everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated. Everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated. I think that's helpful partly because it helps us to make sense of the cultural moment we are in right now. See, this whole approach to identity formation isn't just about the individual. Yes, it is about the individual, but it also has a profound impact on the society in which that individual lives because the society has to celebrate it. We have to affirm it. And so we say things like, you do you, and be authentic, and pursue your dreams. It's also worth saying uh, that for anyone who questions the pursuit of that inner self or certainly anything that is seen to repress, suppress or encourage, sort of diminish someone finding their true selves is seen as uh, offensive, dangerous and needs to be silenced. Uh, but we're going to explore that in two weeks' time when we come to the topic of free speech and the hashtag words of violence. So I'll leave that there for now. Really, uh, what I want to do is just give you what Rosner calls the seven tenets of expressive individualism. Uh, as we read them through, it'll just sound like you're reading the newspaper. This is very familiar to us, I suspect, or at least the values of the newspaper. The best way to find yourself is to look inwards. The highest goal in life is happiness. All moral judgments are merely expressions of feeling or personal preference. Forms of external authority are to be rejected. The world will improve dramatically as the scope of individual freedom grows. Everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated. And then lastly, certain aspects of a person's identity, such as their gender, ethnicity or sexuality, are of paramount importance. Now, I could take each of those and try and expand on it and do a similar talk to last week, but I don't think I need to because I suspect all of us just go, yeah, that's the culture in which we live. Uh, and 
actually it, it, it often even it's not just the culture out there it sort of permeates and has made its way into the church a lot of the time but what's good about it again I'll offer a critique but before we do that let's at least acknowledge it's not all bad um, there are some helpful things in this uh, new way of seeing things. Let me suggest three. Uh, the first is that it's an approach to life that encourages self-reflection and self-awareness. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Uh, we're hardly encouraging the opposite. Know nothing about yourself at all. No. Um, the Bible also encourages a sense of sort of healthy introspection. And so Paul will say things like, test yourself to see whether you're in your faith. Um, or, you know, think of yourself with sober judgment. Now, again, there's a specific context there. But all of that requires a level of self-reflection, introspection. And so uh, there is nothing intrinsically wrong with looking inside. It's just worth knowing that. Looking in is not all bad. Second, uh, expressive individualism is driven by a desire to see... I think this is really helpful is driven by a desire to see many marginalised groups in society affirmed as full members and treated with dignity and respect. You see, the truth is we don't have to agree with someone's life choices or their view of the world to want them to be treated fairly, to want them to be treated with dignity and respect and as a real human. And so to the extent that expressive individualism has actually sort of just... Uh, sped that up or pointed out inconsistencies in the way that we operate, we should be thankful for. We want people to be treated with dignity and respect. Uh, third kind of strength is that authenticity, there is a sense in which authenticity is worth commending, particularly if the alternative is mindless conformity or you know, flat-out hypocrisy. See, uh, Charles Taylor makes, he's a Canadian philosopher, he makes the point that part of the reason, I think I said something to this earlier, part of the reason that expressive individualism really you know, had roots in the 1800s, but it kicks into gear in the 60s, was largely in response to the culture of conformity that many understood the 50s to be. And so uh, Taylor, writing of the 50s, says it crushed individuality and creati creativity it was too concerned with production and concrete results. It repressed feeling and spontaneity and exalted the mechanical over the organic. I don't think anyone wants to go back to that. And so again, uh, we'll, we'll touch a little bit more on hypocrisy a little later on, but uh, living authentically, there's something to be said for that, uh, particularly if the alternative is just sort of this blind conformity going along with everyone else. I don't think that really helps anyone either. So I do think there are some things that are strong about it. And again, as I said, I will in just a moment offer a specifically biblical critique, but let me just maybe point out some weaknesses in it that I think anyone could probably agree with, whether they're a Christian or not. Three things. Number one, expressive individualism is almost certainly responsible for the massive spike in anxiety and identity confusion that so many are facing today. Now, the irony is, on the one hand, it's never been more important to know who you are. On the other hand, for many people, it's never been more difficult. And so the studies are telling us, actually, more and more people are going through identity crises, not just more often, but earlier in life. You don't have to wait till midlife to have an affair and buy a Ferrari. Like, people are having midlife crises, a quarter-life crisis. You turn it... 25, people are having a crisis. 
uh, you hit 30, it's kind of a thrysis. And there, there's this, uh, if you're on the, the edge of you know, a new stage, there's cuspiety as you hit 40, 50, 60, 70. Who am I? Increasingly, no one is really sure. There's this growing anxiety about it. In some ways, uh, it makes sense, or at least it's to be expected, because on the one hand, the idea that you can be the master of your destiny is exhilarating. On the other hand, the weakness of the project is that the whole thing is dependent on you. And so what if you get to 40 and realize that you've built this life, but the ladder's been kind of leaning against the wrong wall? Or, uh, what if you have this grand dream and ambition and you fail? Does that mean the self inside is a failure? What does that do to your sense of self-worth? I think lots and lots of people are increasingly finding themselves, it's all on me, I have to decide who I am. Well, I'm not really sure who I am. So I think the first weakness of expressive individualism is that it's at least contributing to a growing sense of anxiety and identity confusion. The second, and we touched on this a little last week, is that it tells us to reduce who we are down to one or two identity markers and then proceeds to divide us into groups in society depending on the markers we've chosen. See, the reality is all of us actually have a bunch of identity markers, not two or three. And so let me describe myself uh, using 10 traditional identity markers that have mostly been used for a, a very long time. So I am a white, Australian, able-bodied, Christian male with English heritage somewhere back on both sides. I'm not sure how far, but back, go back enough. There's English heritage. Uh, I'm married with two children. I'm a mortgage-paying homeowner living in the eastern suburbs of Sydney who works as a pastor, drives a Hyundai, and is in his mid-30s. Uh, yeah, grey, but proud. <laughs> That's, that's ten things that tell you a little bit about me. It still actually doesn't really tell you anything about who I am you know, on the inside, if you like, but they're kind of some, some identity markers. But our, our culture and expressive individualism says, no, 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 don't, don't worry about those ten. Narrow it down to kind of one or two. And particularly if any of those are membership in a marginalised group, major on that one in particular. And now we will divide you as a society up into those groups. Right, that's, um, that's identity politics 101. And it is fracturing our society and more and more and more the more we do it. So I think that's the second weakness. The third weakness, which I think is only exacerbated by social media, is that it changes the nature of friendship. See, friendship used to be about truth-telling in the context of commitment. And so a true friend would stick with you through thick and thin, but they'd also tell you to pull your head in if you ever needed to. Right? They would point something out and say, uh, you're, being, you're letting yourself down, you're letting others down, this is not who you are. But these days, friendships that involve truth-telling don't often last. Uh, friendship seems to be more about flattery than truth-telling. And so we just have to stand there and say, you do you, um, you be authentic. I'll give you a thumbs up on social media, but I'm not really allowed to say anything else. Ironically, it, it seems to be contributing to a growing isolation, a, a loneliness. You know, we all end up like Elsa in a kingdom of isolation. Looks like I'm the queen. 
Anyway. So there you go. There is, um, what is it, expressive individualism. What is it? Well, it's an approach to identity formation. It's an approach to answering the question, who am I? I'm not going to let anyone else tell me who, I'm, who I am. I'm going to look inside. I'm going to uh, dig deep, um, spend time discovering who I am to discover the authentic, the real me, and then I'm going to live out that in front of the world. And then I want the world to applaud me, to congratulate me, to celebrate me because I'm authentic. That's what it is. And I think we see that everywhere. So... That's point one. Uh, second thing, as I said, uh, is I want to offer a biblical critique of expressive individualism. And really, according to the Bible, the primary problem with expressive individualism is that it fails to, identi- uh, uh, fails to appreciate our true identity as children of God. And so what happens when we listen to the voice on the inside is that we end up rejecting the voice of our Father and instead listening to the voice of Satan. Right? At its heart, that's the problem with it. It fails to appreciate that who we are as children of God. And so when we listen to the voice inside, we actually reject the voice of our Father and instead listen to the voice of Satan. And so I want to show you uh, sonship done badly and then sonship done well. Or child of God done badly and then child of God done well. And the first example will be child uh, sonship done badly. And we're going to take a look at the temptation of Adam and Eve. Because really, if you go back to the Bible, right at the start of the Bible, there is almost a prim- I know expressive individualism sort of comes out really in the 60s, but there's a primitive version of it right back at the start of the Bible. And so as you kind of come to the start of the Bible, you've got Adam and Eve, they've just been created. They're in a garden paradise. God is their father. And Satan is going to come and tempt them. The thing is, the the question is not so much, or at least not just, will they listen to God? Will they obey God? Really, the question is, will they act as God's children? Will they listen to their father? You see, to be created in God's image means a few things, but one of the things it means is that we are God's offspring, In other words, we're supposed to relate to him as a parent and grow up to take on the family likeness. And so God as a father, we are his children. You see that, Adam and Eve. How are they going to respond? Well, uh, let's take a look at it. I'm reading from Genesis 3, verse 1 to 5. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals, and the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, Satan's words are designed to get Adam and Eve to doubt the goodness of being God's kids. You'll be like God if you listen to me. You don't want to be his kid. You want to be like him, you know, his equal. And tragically, they listen to him. I feel like they listen to the voice inside. Satan fools them into believing that the words of their father are repressive. And if they just let it go, if they just 
saying no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free, everything will get better. Now the truth is they do experience a kind of freedom. Because in rejecting God as the Father, in rejecting God as authoritative, they get to usurp his authority and now they're in charge. They get to decide, no right, no wrong, I can decide. But it is freedom that comes at an incredible cost. Because not only in doing that do they forfeit the privilege of being God's children, they're also banished from his presence and condemned to both a spiritual and physical death in the long run. Now, just as an aside, it's fascinating to see how closely their actions resemble some of those tenets of expressive individualism we explored earlier. Uh, Just think of it. They reject an external authority to themselves. Uh, They believe their existence will improve dramatically as they assert their freedom more and more. And they make moral judgments according to personal preference. Adam and Eve were the first expressive individualists. They were the, you know, Adam and Eve were saying, you do you, honey. You do you, babe. And what to get them? Well, the tragedy is it's a way of life that rejects who we are and instead embraces a true, a a kind of freedom which ultimately just leads to death and misery. So there is a sonship or a childhood of godness done badly. I want to show you it done well, though. Because we could have stopped here, could have just moved on. But I think you actually see uh, the failure of Adam and Eve even more when you compare it to Jesus who does it properly. See, many of you will know, I know not everyone here is a believer. Uh, Great to have you here. Um, But some of you will be familiar with the Bible. And you'll know in the New Testament, Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And there he undergoes temptation. And it's remarkable how how similar that context is where Jesus is being tempted with Adam and Eve's temptation. Because as with Adam and Eve, the temptation of Jesus really revolves around his sonship. What kind of a son is he going to be? Is he the son? And so we won't read it now, but if if you know the passages, you'll know there's three temptations. The first two start with, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God... Throw yourself down and the angels will catch you. Again, it's all about sonship. And what Satan is, when Satan comes to Jesus, we're supposed to be asking the question, how does a true son respond in temptation? How does does a true child of God behave? Does, Does he, does she listen to the voice of inside and assert their independence? Or do they embrace their identity and obey God even when it's hard? Jesus shows us the answer because in all three of the temptations, he responds by quoting scripture, the word of God, and says, no, this is is who I'm going to listen to, the voice of my father. And so uh, he stands firm. It's interesting when you compare those two approaches, isn't it? Because what you see, it really are two different approaches uh, to being a child of God, or if you like a failed and a a successful approach. Uh, Because with Adam and Eve, they assert their independence, take the path of expressive individualism, which is ultimately a path that leads to misery and death. Whereas Jesus, he embraces his identity. He says, you know what? I am a son of God. And so I'm going to listen to the good and loving word of my father and do what he says, even if it's hard. And ultimately, that is a way of life 
that sets the course for an entire new humanity that ultimately leads to life. So what do we learn at the end of just kind of sonship, done well, done badly? What do you learn about expressive individualism? Well, the risk of sounding alarmist, it's satanic. Grace City, the voice telling you to be authentic, the voice telling you to ignore God and obey your desires, that's not the voice inside. That's not your true self. That's Satan. But that's not who you are. You are a child of God. And God's kids listen to his voice. You know, see, Satan is the father of lies. He's been lying since the beginning. He lied to Adam and Eve. He tried to lie. Well, he did lie, but tried to get Jesus to listen to him. He continues to lie to you today. And he will say things like, God wants to keep your eyes closed and hold you back from uh, reaching your potential. Don't, don't listen to the voices of the family or the friends or the tradition or the religion. Listen to the voice inside and become your true self. That's what will lead to happiness or fulfillment. Grace City, don't listen to him. Those lies, he promises freedom, but they will enslave you. See, the lesson I think we learn from both of these true temptations is that true freedom is found in knowing God as your Father, embracing who you are, trusting His Word, resisting Satan's lies, and finding your identity in being known and loved by God, your Father. And so you don't, you don't look in, you look up. You don't find your true self by looking in. You find your true self by looking up to the Father who created you, and as we'll see next, the Father who saves us. So we've looked at what it is. We've critiqued it with the Bible. A third, let's come and explore a, uh, a biblical approach or a biblical alternative for identity formation. Um, as we do this, I could go to a multiple, a bunch of different places, but I just want to focus in on one chapter. It's Colossians chapter 3. If you're in a community group, I think our community groups this week are just going to be working through this passage together, so um, uh, make sure you get along to it. But I think you, you see the beautiful logic of Christian identity formation in this passage. So let's look at it together. Uh, we'll kind of see three separate steps. The first is that your true self is not inside you, but above you. Your true self is not inside you, but above you. Read with me from Colossians 3, 1 to 4. It says, Since then... You've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. Now, there's a bunch in there. The first thing to say is that when we follow, which we all do, the path that Adam and Eve followed, we die. We, both kind of spiritually speaking, first of all, and then eventually physically speaking. But we, we forfeit the privileges of being children of God. And so the first thing that needs to happen is for us to, if we want to become children of God, if we want to get a new identity, our old self has to die and a new self is, has to be raised. A, a child of God needs to be raised. Now, 
the Bible says that that's what happens when you trust in Christ. Because when you trust in Christ, you are united to Christ by His Spirit. And so His experience becomes your experience. His obedience becomes your obedience. Uh, God looks at Him and all that he, see, he looks at you and everything that is true of Him in terms of His relationship and His perfection uh, is applied to you. And so that's why Paul will say, uh, you know, starting from that second one first, for you died. You're like, I didn't die. Yes, you did. If you trust in Christ, you died. But then also, you have been raised with Christ. And so there's a new you. And what this means is that for the Christian, what this means is that for the Christian, uh, the true self is not the person you see in the mirror. Uh, the true self is not the person you think of or you find when you look inside yourself. The true self is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, your true self is in heaven. Your true self is a forgiven, is a perfected. Your true self is a glorious self. That's why Paul says what he does. Uh, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then who? You also will appear with him in glory. That's the true you. And so, Grace City, just think this through with me. Particularly if you are uh, struggling with uh, any kind of desire or temptation that is uh, really tempting you to define yourself with those desires. Uh, all of us have different struggles. Um, but if you're, if you're wrestling with the question, who am I? Uh, inside, I feel like I am this, but... And maybe the Bible or whatever it is tells me not to. Just think it through. Who is the true you? Is it what your desires tell you? And those will change. Greater, smaller. Over the course of your life, our desires change. Is it what your desires tell you you are in this moment? Or is it the you, the perfected, forgiven, glorious you hidden with Christ and God that will one day be a peer with Christ in glory and will live for all eternity. Just so you know, I think it's the second one. It's the true you. And so the Bible says the true you, if you're in Christ, the true, no, isn't, the true you is not inside you, it's above you. So don't look within, look up. Uh, that's why Paul finishes that little section with uh, set your mind on things above. That's where you are. That's the first step. Okay, you say, what? I still have the desires. What am I supposed to do with those? Second step, put off or put to death, the Bible says, whatever belongs to your old nature. Look with me. Uh, 3, 5, 9 and 10. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Right? Our culture says that our feelings and our desires define us. And so if you're attracted to members of the opposite sex, you're heterosexual. If you're attracted to members of the same sex, you're homosexual. If you're attracted to both, you're bisexual. Your desires define you. Or if you kind of have this um, well, 
obsession with accumulating more and more stuff. Uh, culture says, you are a business person. <laughs> or you're, a, you're a multimillionaire on the inside and in the making. Your desires define you. But the Bible says, no, they don't. Uh, those desires belong to your old nature, to your old self. The self that said to God, no, thank you, I'm not a child. But there is a new self that you have. And so the Bible says, uh, because it's not who you are now, put those things to death. Remember, you died. You've been raised with Christ. And so the logic of the New Testament is don't keep living in light of who you used to be. Paul says, you've taken off your old self and have put on the new self. Notice, by the way, that's a, that's a past tense. It's not put on your new self. You have put on your new self. You are a new you. The old you is gone. The new you exists. You've put it on. I'll, I'll qualify that in a moment. And so the logic of the New Testament... Well, I'm going to come to that later. Now, you might be sitting there going, well, I can't just flick a switch. I still have the desires. Yeah. And the reality is you have put off and you have put on, but all of us are continue to be plagued by desires. Our earthly nature will stick with us until the very last day. And so the Christian life is one of a constant struggle. Uh, it is a constant battle saying no to our old earthly nature and trying to say yes to our new heavenly nature. Um, but at the end of the day, those desires don't define you. Uh, you have taken off the old, you put on the new. And so in Christ, um, by the power of his spirit, you're being renewed more and more into the image of your creator. Third step. The Bible says, do the new you. Do the new you. So look at verse 12 with me. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Notice the order there. He doesn't say, if you clothe yourself with kindness, humility, gentle, you will be a chosen people, holy and dearly loved. He flips the order. He says, because you are chosen, holy and dearly loved, can you put these things on? That's who you are. And so the Bible says, you do you, or more specifically, do the new you. The new you is humble. The new you is kind. The new you is gentle and patient. So increasingly put those things on, become who you are. Live an authentic life for crying out loud, because that's who you are. That's not just, I'll pull my bootstraps up. You're united to Christ. This is the true you, and you have God's spirit inside of you. If you trust in Christ, working every day, chiseling away the bits of the old you, helping you to put to death the bits of the old you, and increasingly conforming you and renewing you in the image of your Creator. See, our world uh, is confused about the nature of hypocrisy and authenticity. Our world hates being fake. I think there is something commendable about that, because it's a lie. But I think we're confused because we seem to have developed the idea that to live in a way that's out of step with how we feel is hypocritical. And we know Jesus reserves some of his most severe criticism for the hypocrites, so we don't want to be hypocritical, do we? Well, no, but that wasn't what Jesus was talking about. 
You see, hypocrisy is living out of step with what you believe. Uh, living in step with what you believe, even if it's not always how you feel, that's not hypocrisy, that's integrity. And that's what the Bible calls us to. See, the problem with our feelings is that they can be, well, they're not always a reliable guide to truth. Now, sometimes they are. And actually, increasingly, uh, God, by His Spirit, aligns our desires to match His. And again, the Spirit has desires. And so as we grow as a Christian, you know, it's not always... But it's not always the way. And they often conflict. Our desires turn us against one another. And ultimately, our desires lead us to death which is precisely what Satan wants. And so he'll say, listen to the voice. That's who you are. Be authentic. But God says, real authenticity is living as my child. I created you. You're a son. You're a daughter. And then in Christ, I saved you. So you have a new you. It's hidden with Christ in God. And so now be authentic. Live in light of who you really are. And one day will be revealed in glory. Don't look in. You look in, you'll lose yourself. You look up, you'll find yourself. Let me close. Uh, as I close, I just want to make the observation that I think looking up rather than looking in uh, counteracts and resolves some of the weaknesses of expressive individualism. It gives us the strengths as well, but I won't go into that. So the first weakness of expressive individualism was that it contributes to a growing sense of anxiety because we're trying to figure who am I? The Bible says your identity isn't achieved. You don't need to strive for it. You don't need to work for it. It's not achieved, it's received. God has done the work for you because he sent Christ to die in your place. That's who you are. You're a child loved of him. It doesn't mean you won't still struggle with anxiety. Christians do. But it does mean that you can be secure knowing who you are in Christ. You're his child. And so we're going to sing a song in just a moment that says, You are chosen, not forsaken. He is for you, not against you. And so rest in that knowledge. Second, the second weakness uh, that we identify was that expressive individualism kind of forces us to put all our identity eggs in one basket and then kind of divides us against one another on the basis of the label. And this one's interesting because the label Christian or being in Christ, it does trump all the others but not in a divisive way. It actually unites us. You know, in the church, we have people of all the different labels, but we're united together in Christ. But more than that, it also gives us a posture of humility and service towards even those who aren't in Christ. Third, third weakness that we identified was that expressive individualism changed the nature of friendships. And friends just flatter you these days. The Bible says, now a true friend tells you who you are, and remind you to live in light of it. I say, you're not a slave to your desires. Who are you? You're a child of God. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You're a child of God. Yes, you are. So don't do you. Do the new you. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a loving God, a gracious and forgiving Heavenly Father. Uh, we ask forgiveness for when we listen to the voice inside that tempts us uh, to doubt your goodness, to doubt our identity as your children. Instead, help us to listen to your voice, 
spoken in your scriptures and affirmed through your spirit. Uh, help us to increasingly live as your children, uh, looking up, not looking in, uh, and resting in your grace when we find that hard. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.